0: Edinburgh may be the high point of royal Scottish culture, but to get a real dose of Scottish
1: pride, you've got to see Glasgow. If you go into some of the local pubs, the people are really friendly. They'll engage you in conversation and persuade you that Glasgow is the center of the world.
0: Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, Scottish tour guide Anne Doig tells us how Glasgow has grown beyond its blue-collar roots and makes an ideal base for exploring Scotland. A few miles south, Roy Nichols unearths the sites of ancient Britain that you can visit today from Roman-built Hadrian's Wall to mysterious Stonehenge. Because it's more than just the stones. There
2: are dozens of different elements that make up what we call a ritual landscape.
0: And for a slice of ancient Roman life up close, Nina Bernardo helps us plan a visit to Pompeii in Italy.
3: It's not just a pile of rubble, and you really get a chance to see how they constructed their buildings, how they laid out their street patterns, and how much of our civilization is based on Roman civilization.
0: Let's explore the world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If stones could talk, what would they tell us? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how there's a story behind nearly every stone in the English countryside. And we'll get tips on seeing 1st-century Pompeii frozen in time after being buried with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. Let's start in Scotland. While you just have to see stately Edinburgh and venture into the romantically lonely highlands, Scotland's largest city has turned into quite an attraction of its own. Anne Doig joins us now to fill us in on what Glasgow has to offer. We're at 877-333-RICK, and by email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. Anne, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you, Rick. Yes, it is very unusual for a person from Edinburgh to be talking about Glasgow because there's real rivalry. They'll say in Glasgow, you'll have a better time at a funeral in Glasgow than a wedding in Edinburgh. (laughs) Was that right? So
0: what, what exactly does that mean?
1: Well, a huge amount of Irish came to Glasgow. Glasgow was a city where you could get work. It was an industrial city. So there's a wonderful mix of migrants, Irish first, and then after the war, Italians, and then people from South Asia. And it's 5,000 per week in 1844 from Ireland. We're coming in. We're coming into Glasgow during the hungry 40s. So
0: in the Industrial Revolution, Mm -hmm. Glasgow was just becoming a a real mighty industrial center.
1: Second city of the British Empire.
0: Now, I understand the population exceeded 1 million at a a certain time, but now it's down to 700,000. Why is that?
1: Well, the industries went after the Second World War. There was shipbuilding, manufacturing. It's all gone. Iron and steel... So people have left.
0: So there must have been dreadful days or years. Yes. But now that seems to be changing.
1: Yes, it's on the up again. In fact, they say the sort of economic history of Glasgow is very similar to its topography. It's built on what the geologists call drumlins, which are little hillocks formed by the ice when it was melting. So you go up and down, up and down, a wee bit like San Francisco, you know. And the people, because of the economics, developed an amazing sense of humor. (laughs) And comedians... If they make it in Glasgow, they'll make it anywhere. They're terrified of the Glaswegian clouds because they're often funnier than the comedians on stage. They've got a great sense of humor, and I believe that comes from Ireland.
0: Terrified of the Glaswegian what? Audiences. Well, the audiences. Yes. If you bomb in Glasgow, you better run for the hills, huh? That's right. (laughs) So how can a traveler enjoy that when they come to Glasgow?
1: Well, it's everywhere, really. There's a lot of theaters uh, and pubs and a lively night scene. And if you go into some of the local pubs, the people are really friendly. They'll engage you in conversation and persuade you that Glasgow is the centre of the world and Edinburgh, is all it's got is a clock. (laughs) So so if I came into uh,
0: Glasgow all alone and I just wanted to connect with people, I could go to a pub, just a mini-corner pub, and I would imagine the best thing is just to go right right up to the bar and sit at the bar. That's That's where you're most accessible. Mm -hmm. And what would we talk about?
1: Well, mostly they'll tell you how great Glasgow is. They love their city. They're really passionate about it. Uh, there's a little pub in the centre called the Horseshoe Pub. If you find that, it's a classic pub, if mm-hmm. you like, public house. And a lot of the office workers will go th- in there at night, so it's not full of tourists.
0: So that's what you want, is a, mm-hmm. kind of a spit mm-hmm. us local, mm-hmm. and sawdust uh, local and have a lot of local people to talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about Britain, you think, Dublin, it's a beautiful Georgian city. Edinburgh mm-hmm. is a beautiful Georgian city, mm-hmm. part of the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And then you think Glasgow and you think Belfast. These are industrial powerhouses. That's right, yeah. Both of these cities have had boom times and then tough times. Mm-hmm. And now they are coming back as not industrial heavy industry cities, but cultural cities. When you take a walk in Glasgow, you're going to see a, a renovated riverside path. Talk about how you might just enjoy a, a walk through Glasgow.
1: Well, there's a lovely walk through the Merchant City and they often use Glasgow as New York in the turn of the century for Edith Wharton novels. And there was a Brad Pitt film filmed there, big sandstone buildings, and they're much more exuberant than the buildings in Edinburgh. You've always got to look up the way. So the Merchant City has some of the finest Victorian buildings and then along the riverfront, it's all modern.
0: Modern, yeah, because when you go to Edinburgh, it's all very... Um Elegant 18th century and, 18th century and, elegant, and very yeah. nice and you go to Glasgow and you've got some striking architecture tell us about Macintosh
1: well Charles Rennie Macintosh was a Glaswegian architect well ahead of his time and he was a true artist he would not compromise his ideals and that made him not so popular in Scotland because um, when he was building a commission he'd often go over budget so he actually died in poverty but he left us a wonderful legacy of Art Nouveau, and he was really the exponent of Art Nouveau from Scotland, and well received in the secession in Austria, but really received better in Europe than he was in his own homeland. So that's interesting.
0: A lot of people absolutely love Art Nouveau, and they'll Mm. go to Jugendstil, and they'll Mm -hmm. love the Alphonse Mucha in the Czech Republic. They'd love Gaudi in Barcelona. And if you're going to Britain... If you go to Glasgow... The, perhaps the best art nouveau you can see in Britain would be in Glasgow.
1: The Glasgow School of Art, and they do excellent tours. He designed the Glasgow School of Art. So
0: that's a building that would be sort your quintessential Charles Rennie Mackintosh building.
1: And his own home they took down and put in the museum at, um, in Glasgow, the Hunterian, so you can actually see his, the house that he actually lived in, which is really interesting.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Glasgow in Scotland and joined by a uh, Scottish guide Anne Doig, Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jan's on the phone from Racine, Wisconsin. Jan, thanks for your call.
4: Hi. uh, This is a very timely thing. We definitely have plans for Glasgow this summer. We've heard a lot about the redevelopment along the riverfront. I was wondering if you could comment more about... I know in the past it might have been a little touchy to be down there, but uh, there's a new museum, I understand,
1: Yes, there's a a new transport. The Transport Museum before was excellent, but this is really mind-blowing. There's a new museum, there's a science museum, um, there's a huge conference centre, which they call the Armadillo, because it looks a bit like an (laughs) armadillo. Uh, BBC Scotland on the front, new hotels. It's very, very modern. It looks more like an American city, actually. But that was all developed after the, the Garden Festival in 1988, the whole city was renovated, and they're really looking into the future in a modern way.
0: So I understand there's a particular museum dedicated to shipbuilding and the shipbuilding engineering building, heritage yes. of the River Clyde.
1: Uh-huh, the Transport Museum, and it's down on the river. So that's front. called
0: the Transport Museum yes. on the Riverside. hmm that's right. right. Jan, have you been to Glasgow?
4: Not yet. That's why we've been to different places in Scotland. It's a wonderful uh, place to visit, Oak city, town, up in Skye, everything.
0: Mm.
4: We very much look forward to a return visit.
0: There is sort of a buzz about Glasgow these days, isn't
4: there? Well, that's why there's, you know, a real intrigue about, you know, seeing some of the, obviously, you know, the old heritage exhibits, whether it's Macintosh throughout the city, right. but also some of the gardens, some of the museums, always a very interesting art scene we hear, um, yes. and also some of the local artists and artisans.
0: You know, all around Europe, there are these uh, quirky little... Time warp, lost in the past discoveries that they make. And I understand in Glasgow there's a place called the Tenement House. And can you explain the Tenement House?
1: Well, the Tenement House was a classic tenement. And I know in the States a tenement can be sort of low-level uh, economic, but not in Scotland. Tenements were often for lower-middle-class, middle-class people. So
0: people aspire to live in a tenement?
1: Well, yes, you probably eventually in the 20th century wanted to And they discovered it out, but this woman's house, like just perfectly preserved. She lived in it from, perfectly preserved. from 1880 till about 25 years ago, and it's exactly the way it always was. She didn't move forward, so it's like a time warp. Glasgow and now it's open does. to the public. It's open to the public. It's run by the National Trust for Scotland, yes. Very so, interesting.
0: So if uh, Jan's going to Glasgow, her top sites would be the Glasgow School of Art to see the Art Nouveau, yes, the Tenement House, just to drop in on, uh, what's her name, Agnes towards uh, home from the 1930s that's right and the, uh, well, the transport Kelvin Grove, museum the
1: transport museum and the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery and uh, museum which has just reopened as well the Barrel Collection I mean Glasgow's absolutely full of art galleries and it's interesting that a Glaswegian has won the Turner Art Prize for the last three or four times it's from amazing the,
0: you're, you're from Edinburgh and you mm-hmm. sound like you are a spokesperson <laughs> for the Glasgow <laughs> Tourist Board <laughs> Jen there's lots of ideas aren't there for Glasgow
4: very much so. That's why. Thank you very much.
0: All right. Have a good time on your visit. Yes. And Chris is on the phone from Novato, California. Chris, thanks for your call.
5: Thank you. Well, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Um, my great-great-great-grandfather on my father's side emigrated to the United States from Scotland, from Glasgow. And I've never been to Scotland. It's way up on my list of places to go. And I was just delighted to hear you guys talking about Charles Rennie Mackintosh. I'm an artist as well and I'm very interested in the arts scene in Glasgow so any suggestions for me?
1: Well I would say I'll just jump in right away and say you must go to the Glasgow School of Art which is right in the centre of the city and he designed uh-huh. it and the art students there all of them seem to do really well in the international arts scene and they actually guide you round, so you have a an art student taking you around so you can really appreciate the building. And you'll understand why he didn't compromise his ideals for money. <laughs> it yeah, was well right. over budget. So that would be my number one place. Sounds like
0: a lavish building. And could you um also sort of build upon that and get a guided walk through the city from an architectural point of view?
1: Yes, they do architectural walks through the mer- Merchant City. Okay. Uh, the new buildings along the, the front, you would be advised probably to take the double-decker top bus that goes round and you can hop off and hop on because they're a little bit further out.
0: We should mention, much as we're raving about Glasgow here, I don't think you would go to Glasgow at the expense of Edinburgh. You should probably try to see both of them. Mm. Edinburgh has so much charm and everybody just loves it. And the exciting news is there's four trains an hour connecting the two cities. You could almost commute back and forth.
1: Well, that's right. Oh, it's, that's great. You could that's actually great. sleep in a minutes. hotel
0: in Glasgow and have a 12-hour day in Edinburgh and come back. Absolutely. Or vice versa.
1: And the hotels in Glasgow tend to be a little bit less expensive than Edinburgh. <laughs> I think on my next trip, I'm going to stay in Glasgow
0: mm-hmm. and then I can relax on the train for an hour getting over to Edinburgh. Well,
1: actually, you can take a bus. It's much cheaper. out oh, in that Scottish. Right? Yes. Yeah? Oh. It's £6.50 and they go every 15 minutes from just behind the train station.
5: You know, thinking about taking the bus—it's a slower way over land. You get to see a little bit more, I would imagine.
1: Yes, but I have to say that bus route from Edinburgh to Glasgow—it's the only route in Scotland that's not scenic.
0: <laughs> it's right, <laughs> right through the.
5: <laughs> of course, of course.
0: <laughs> well, you're going to get there quicker, and there's plenty of scenic uh, joys in Edinburgh and yeah. in Glasgow. Chris, thanks for your call. Oh,
5: thank you so much.
0: Bye now.
1: Bye bye. Bye bye.
0: I understand that if you're interested in your physical safety, you want to uh, steer clear of drunken brawls between supporters of the two soccer teams.
1: Exactly. Be careful. The old firm, they call it. There's real rivalry between Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers, and oh. it's really quite ugly. Be yeah. careful what
0: colors you wear on game It'll day. Say, huh? that's
1: what, when you go into, a lot of my Americans ask, what does it mean, no colors? You're not allowed to wear your football colors in a pub because it can cause a... A fight, a punch-up.
0: <laughs> wow! What colors are those?
1: Well, green and white is Celtic, obviously. Green and white, there goes and half red, my white, and blue is Rangers. Red, and white, it's and blue. Protestant <laughs> and Catholic. Protestant yeah. and Catholic. Yeah, and it's
0: very interesting. Mm. So, Anne, you say the people of Glasgow have a better time at a funeral than the people of Edinburgh have at a wedding. That's so, if I want to get in on some of that funeral fun to really connect with the Glaswegian people and uh, just really have a, a fun cultural experience, where would I go and what would I do?
1: Well, I would go to the West End, Byers Road, the university area, the ubiquitous Chips, an old established restaurant. Or right in the centre of town is the Horseshoe Pub, and c- you connect with definitely with the people there, local pubs so and plenty restaurants. Plenty of sightseeing during the mm. day,
0: and then in the evening, get out there, enjoy the pub scene. Absolutely. And celebrate yeah. uh, Glaswegian cultural boom. Yes. Hen Doig, thank you very much for thank taking you. us to Glasgow. <laughs> Next, we head south to the border with England, hop over Hadrian's Wall, and explore the sites of ancient Britain on Travel with Rick Steves. British countryside is dappled with evidence of centuries past, even in the stones that scatter across the landscape. There are just dozens of places where you can practically feel the touch of people from long ago. Joining us now on Travel with Rick Steves to help us better understand what the stones have to teach us and to recommend some of his favorite ancient sites is archaeologist and tour guide, Roy Nichols. Roy, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rick. When I walk around England, I get a sense that there are so many layers. I was just walking on Hadrian's Wall. When you walk along Hadrian's Wall, what do you think? What do you
2: see? It's the obvious things, like the wall itself and the forts and all the buildings that make up Hadrian's Wall. But for me, it's the reality of their connection with people. And this
0: is something we shouldn't forget about is that history History isn't abstract. It's people. It's real people. And you know, you think about this godforsaken corner of England. Yeah. Way up there we're on the border of Scotland, basically. What, 1800 years ago, the Romans yes. decided to wall off the empire and build this wall from coast to coast. And then, basically, I think, well-off kids, kids from good families got sent up there to be in the army. Yes,
2: it, it was the equivalent of the British in India throughout the 19th and earlier 20th century. It was the same similar sort of posting it was where if you were a young up-and-coming lad you wanted to make a name for yourself in the army that's where the action was because there were more there was more fighting there was more action going on in the british isles than any other part of the roman empire there were
0: four legions at any one time in britain now our challenge is to go to these places and bring them to life you can walk on hadrian's wall and it's basically it's a beautiful walk it's beautiful pastoral countryside and some dramatic cliffs and a lot of rocks that the romans put there or you can imagine it with uh, mile castles and chariots moving troops from mile to mile. And
2: how do you bring it to life? It's that connection with people who are no different from ourselves. It's a great linear city. It's a whole series of, yes, military fortifications. It had a military purpose. Oh, the, the wall itself was a linear city. I see what you mean. Well, see about. it as a linear city. And that's why I always describe it to people I yeah. take up there is how long? It, um, 80 Roman miles, 72
0: and a half English miles. But it, it's, it's the. What are American miles? About the same. About the same. <laughs> so running <laughs> 70 miles. The wall actually had a road built onto it, didn't they? To, the to Stain Gate,
2: yeah, that ran along. Well, it actually existed before the wall was built, and then they used it as a, as a frontier. I, I suppose just for a practical purpose, you couldn't effectively man a 70-mile-long wall, but you could move troops quickly. Exactly. Think about the Maginot Line in 1940. The Germans just went round it. So any static defense is always a problem. And the Roman army didn't do well behind fortifications, but the fact is it's a barrier that they can act as a... Uh, And
0: Romans were really good at roads.
2: Exactly. Like when
0: you look at, when you go to England as a tourist and you think of Britannia, that's the Roman name for that, right? For that province, yeah. 2,000 years ago, it was the Roman province of Britannia. And it was, you could have a road map of that. I mean, it was laced with roads.
2: Exactly. And many of our modern roads... The Romans built something like 10,000 miles in the province of Britain during their occupation. 10,000 miles of Roman roads. They of are various not... standards. And and that's really, right through until the 20th century, is really about the same number of roads that we had.
0: And, and, and I was reading that they, they didn't have a grand plan as much as just looking for a high bluff. And then they would draw a straight line to that bluff, and they'd get to the top of that bluff, and then they'd figure out where they're going to go from that.
2: Yeah, I mean, we always think of Roman roads being dead straight, but they didn't. I mean, they didn't like curves. And obviously, to build the quickest route between two points is the straightest. They had
0: really good surveyors, and they could lay out roads and be very, very accurate. If you're traveling around England and you want to get goosebumps from ancient Rome, what are three or four sites that you would be sure to have on your list?
2: Obviously, Hadrian's Wall, because it's one of the great Roman sites throughout the Great Empire. Although we've got Roman remains all over North Africa and Europe and everywhere else, there's something unique about Hadrian's Wall, this great stone fortification with all the elements to it, both military and
0: social. I did my first real hike on it just a couple months ago, and it was marvelous. Because oh, I got away from the museums and the, and the tourists, yeah. and I was just all alone with that historic wonder. I,
2: I've been going there for 30 years, and I still get that shiver up and down my spine.
0: Marianne from uh, Chicago emailed us, and she writes, I'd like to hike along Hadrian's Wall, all 70 or so miles, but the tours I've found require 8 to 10 miles per day, which is too much for me. Is there any way to do the hike at a somewhat slower pace and still find places to stay along the way?
2: Well, it's more of a remote area, so there aren't as frequent as some of the lowland areas, but you can still do it. And during the summer months, there is a shuttle service, a bus that plies along the wall that goes along to certain stops, the major fortifications and museums
0: and things. So that's good advice anywhere in England is to incorporate your hike with uh, shuttle buses and just yeah, local buses, l-
2: local transport. So it'll take some sort of you know obviously organisation, but you can certainly do it quite easily. Oh yeah,
0: and there's farmhouse B and Bs along the way and so exactly. on. Exactly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Roy Nichols about the wonders of ancient Britain. Our phone numbers eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. Dale's on the line in Blacklick, Ohio. Dale, thanks for your call.
6: Hi, Rick. I'm very interested in uh, Mr. Nichols' comments about ancient Britain. My wife and I traveled in 2009 by a motor coach tour to Britain and Scotland. And among other things, we visited Avebury and Hadrian's Wall and found it very interesting and historical. Uh, We did not get to Stonehenge, but we're wondering what other sites uh, you would recommend for a future trip.
2: Um, Hello Dale. Well there there are prehistoric remains, pre-Roman remains all over Britain and there isn't hardly an area other than industrial areas where you can't find standing stones and stone circles but the south of England generally has one of the largest concentrations. It's no coincidence that Avebury and Stonehenge are in relatively close proximity and there are lots of other less-known sites scattered throughout that area. I
0: might interject that it was a blessing that Dale missed Stonehenge and went to Avebury because just this year they're opening up a new uh, centre at Stonehenge, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, really? It's long-awaited, I believe. Well, it, it's been very, very
2: controversial, and, and what the aim was originally was to try and remove too much of um, obvious modern stuff on the site and return the, the uh, landscape to the way it would have been thousands of years ago, as close as we can to it. They are going to close one of the roads, And what they're going to open is is really as a compromise. But it is trying to remove too much of infringement on the site itself.
0: So you can be there surrounded by the wonder of Britain 5,000 years ago.
2: immerse yourself in all the other elements that make up, because it's more than just the stones. There are dozens of different elements that make up what we call a ritual
0: landscape. As Dale would have found in Avebury, I think. Exactly. Dale, Uh, did you do some things other than the circle at Avebury?
6: We walked through the town. There Rick, we really enjoyed that, and there's a historical church, and there's a a little cafe called the Red Lion, and we had free time, and we we walked around and just soaked up the, uh, the landscape, and we really liked the smaller towns and the villages in Europe.
0: You know, Roy was talking about what was the term? The, the ritual landscape. Yeah, it's, a, it's an ensemble. And if you could go up in an airplane and, and look down on it, it's like a big, vast community that all makes sense mm. in a ritual. You know, the, the standing stones and the
2: Henge Monument, or what we call as a Henge Monument, is just one part of that element makes up all these different things that we call the ritual landscape. It's burial mounds, it's other sort of earthworks, it's standing stones. And some of these ritual landscape certainly the one around Stonehenge and the one around Avebury, cover dozens of square miles.
0: And as Dale experienced, there's a little town right within all of that at Avebury. Oh, yes. You go to the pub and have a pint.
6: Now, if we go back, uh, would you suggest a tour guide or doing it on our own or something else? Well,
2: you can do both, Dale. I mean, it's very easy to research. There's lots of good books on sites that you should see. Dartmoor is a very good place to go. There are some good concentrations of prehistoric monuments there. Now, you need some good maps. Good maps are always essential. Do a little bit of research about the area you might wish to go to, and I would suggest Dartmoor. There are some good standing stones there, stone circles, stone rows, and it does need some hiking because often they're away from that's the beauty. I mean,
0: everybody's been to Stonehenge, and until now it felt like a freeway rest stop, literally, because there's a big highway right next to it, 200 yards away from it. Now you go to what Roy's talking, uh, Dartmoor, Go to a place called Gidley. Yes. G-I-D-L-E-I-G-H. Gidley. I just... This is where I became a travel writer back when I was a kid. I went to Dartmoor, and I hiked from the youth hostel, and I found my own private stone circle after putting up with all the noise at Stonehenge. And I was all alone. I had to hike in about half an hour or so from the hostel. Hmm. But I had the most romantic experience, and then on the train out of there, heading over to Paris, I realized... Nobody knows about Gidley. Everybody goes to Stonehenge, and I just found my own little calling then. Wow, it was back that in the 70s. 70s. I yeah. love that, Dale. If you can incorporate some of those, uh, you know, get a good map and, and, and learn the key, and it'll show you where all these little faint uh, remnants of that age
2: survive. And
6: just explore a little on your own.
0: Yes,
2: because, I mean, they, they are literally everywhere. We're, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of monuments.
6: Would a car be essential?
2: It makes life easier because many of these are remote. And, and what you don't want to do if you're only going for two weeks is spend a lot of time traveling mm-hmm. and trying to fit into other people's schedules, you know, the bus schedules and things. Oh,
0: for the, for the ancient sites, yeah. m- I would go with a car. If, yeah. you're, if you're lacing together cities, a car's a headache. But, boy, if you want to get out of the countryside. Exactly. Hey, Dale, thanks for your call.
6: Well, thank you very much. I enjoy your program.
0: Thank you. And okay, let us bye. know how your next trip goes. Okay, bye. Bye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're Finding Ancient Britain with Roy Nichols. Roy, we've been talking about Roman Britain. We talked about, of course, Hadrian's Wall. I think it's important to remember London was a Roman
2: town. Yes, and and increasingly the Roman city of Londinium uh, We're beginning to realize that instead of it being a very quiet little provincial town, it was actually one of the most important towns
0: in the Western provinces. It is interesting to think of the importance of Britain back then. Oh, Uh, yes. Emperor Constantine, wasn't he coronated in England. Yeah,
2: he was declared emperor in York in 306, I think, 306 AD. But, I mean, other emperors came to Britain. Emperor Claudius, uh, Constans, the Emperor Severus was another one that came to Britain. So it was always an important province, not for all the right reasons sometimes.
0: It had an important role in the Roman governance. You know what my, one of my favorite Roman moments in Britain is? What's that, Rick? In Bath, in the museum, the Roman Baths, looking at the golden statue Yeah, is it Minerva? Yeah, yeah, the goddess. It's just like, it's magical. It's so vivid. Yeah. It's beautifully lit. But you realize there were real people here in Bath, Sulis.
2: And it's that, again, you know, we mentioned it earlier, but the the human element of it, you're not dealing with something that's
0: abstract. You're dealing with people like ourselves. And speaking of that, the Romans brought Christianity to, to Britain.
2: Well, it, the most, one of the most important incidents or points in Roman history was when the Emperor Constantine the Great came to the throne because he was the first Christian emperor. And instead of being a cult that had been oppressed and persecuted for hundreds of years, it became the official religion of the, of the empire. Let's talk legendary. What about uh, the Holy Grail and stuff? The Holy Grail was the, the chalice used at the Last Supper. And right. the story goes that Joseph of Arimathea, one of the followers of Christ, after the death of Christ, brought it to England, this very remote little misty island on the very western edge of
0: the Roman Empire. But when people say that, I go, oh, yeah, right. But they actually had a trade connection, a reason to send guys to... Oh, Britannia. yes. I mean, it's not as if... well, it lead.
2: one of those it was metals generally, but um, the tin trade had begun with the Phoenicians, they think, going back hundreds of years before the Romans. And, of course, tin is an important element in making bronze and there were other sources. But we've got some good evidence that, in fact, the tin from Cornwall and other parts of Britain was going out to the Mediterranean.
0: So it found its way all the way to Rome. Exactly. And Joseph was a tin merchant? That's what the legend says. He brought the Holy Grail, accordingly, to England then. That's right. And then what happened? Well, he
2: established the first Christian church in the little town of Glastonbury in the west of England. So that's the important religiously of, of Glastonbury. It, it, it certainly has a continuity of worship that is unparalleled anywhere else in, in the British Isles. But is that deep, deep and very long connection with Christianity.
0: If you're inclined to believe in the Holy Grail, it would make sense to look for it around Glastonbury. When and
2: if it was lost, yes. But, I mean, even if the Grail didn't exist and is just a small element
0: of it, certainly there was an early Christian church from that period. And to go there today is a fascinating experience. In fact, you can read into a lot of churches and so on a lot of what was there before Christianity came. Yeah, because when
2: Christianity was introduced, often what they would do is take pagan sites, what they called pagan sites, and give them a Christian perspective. It only makes sense. Exactly. I mean, and to make the transition from the old religion to the new religion easy. Christmas and Easter just coincidentally happened to fall on pagan holidays. Christmas is the is the festival of Mithras, the Roman god, and um, Easter, of course, is Ostra,
0: who is the fertility goddess. So if you have a Christian culture sort of overlaying on a pagan culture, it just would make sense to put your holy place on the holy place that was there before... And then you you might have one of your saints that was sort of in charge of keeping down evil pagan spirits. Well, they'd associate a, a modern Christian saint with that
2: particular site, and often you'll get churches dedicated to St. Michael the Archangel. It's said to represent this long-ago conflict between the pre-Christian
0: religion and the Christianity. So you're an archaeologist, and if you are trying to put the pieces together in this puzzle and you find some place in the middle of nowhere in the English countryside that has a church dedicated to St. Michael, you can sort of guess that that church was dedicated to St. Michael because Michael was necessary to overcome the paganness of that particular spot. Well, I think it represents, and it might not be true
2: of every church dedicated to St. Michael, but there are some that are actually built on prehistoric burial mounds. So you could dig underneath that church. And And underneath it would be a a windfall
0: for an archaeologist. Yes. You'd get in trouble with the pastor. but Uh, The Church of England would be very unhappy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about burrowing under churches here with Roy Nichols to learn more about ancient Britain. And this isn't ancient, but to me it feels ancient because it's all ruined. And all over England you find these dramatic, romantic, ruined abbeys. What's our best approach to enjoying these abbeys? Well, I mean, you can visit some of the, the
2: more famous sites like Tintern and uh, Fountains Abbey in Yorkshire, Rivo, Gervaux. But remember, there was something like 500 abbeys and priories, monasteries of all sizes. You said Rivo and Gervaux? Gervaux. Are those French names? Well, they, the, the Cistercian monasteries that have a French foundation to them. So these monastic orders, had their they were spread all over Europe? All, all over So it was a network that provided a
0: cohesiveness.
2: Well, it was one order um, with a head of the order who would then control all the abbeys regardless of which country they were in. And that was the problem for many of the the sort of rulers in in Europe was the church was independent and it was powerful and And it uh, crossed
0: national borders. So it really got in the way of a lot of kings and kings had a very simple solution, dissolution. And all over Europe, you, you read about the dissolution of the monasteries. The king finally got fed up and he said, okay, you guys are out of business and they, in England they just trashed the, the beautiful churches at the monasteries. Uh, and, and not just the political element to it, but also the fact that they were incredibly wealthy
2: and when kings start wanting more money for wars and all the other things they do, then, of course, this Uh is an easy sort of income. And what do you do with the Abbey in the case
0: of Glastonbury?
2: Well, it was dissolved, but that's a euphemism for basically being closed down, pensioning off all the the monks.
0: And what about the abbot, the guy who ran it? What would you do to him? Well, Richard
2: Whiting, most most abbots and uh, heads of the various orders would would actually go away. But in his case, Richard Whiting was hung, drawn, and quartered for his pains because he opposed the king. Hung, drawn, and quartered. It's a pretty gruesome
0: death. We don't do that anymore. Uh,
2: Only for certain (laughs) (laughs) offences.
0: What, actually quartered?
2: Yes. You would be hung until you weren't quite dead, cut down while you were still alive, disemboweled. That's the drawing. Disemboweled? What does that mean? Eviscerated. Your stomach be cut open and all your entrails taken out and burnt before your eyes. And then when you were finally dead, you'd be chopped up into pieces, dipped in tar to preserve your body, and it would be taken to various parts of the, the kingdom to show to anybody what happened to traitors. So the abbot of Glastonbury
0: got cut in four pieces and sent on four national tours at the same time. Yes, it's the ultimate holiday, I <laughs> suppose. <laughs> and the king got his way. And the king always got his way. And today, as tourists, we can uh, not only see the ruined abbey, but learn about what happened to the abbot who stood in the way of the king. Thanks, Ray. Thank you, Rick.
6: Oh, how'd you do? How'd you do, good lady? I'm Arthur, king of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who? The Britons. Who are The Britons. But we all are. We are all Britons, and I am your king.
1: I oh, didn't know we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective.
6: You're fooling
2: yourself. We're living in a dictatorship, a self-perpetuating autocracy in which the working classes Oh, there get... you go, bringing class into it again. That's what it's all about. If only people would please, be... please, good people. I am in haste.
0: If you've ever tried to imagine what it was like to live in the ancient Roman Empire, you'll find an amazing level of detail has been unearthed in and around Pompeii, on the slopes of Italy's Mount Vesuvius. This is where you can see, to this day, how parts of ancient Roman society continue on in the way we live our lives in our age. Up next, Nina Bernardo gives advice on seeing the Roman world in almost living color. We're at 877-333-7425. Now that the sites of ancient Britain have stoked our appetites for encountering past civilizations... Let's head to Italy for the best-preserved remains of everyday life from the Roman Empire. American-born Nina Bernardo lives in Rome, and she's been taking tourists through the streets and buildings of Pompeii now for years. Nina, thanks for joining us.
3: Glad to be here.
0: So what is special about Pompeii? I mean, people travel three hours on the train south from Rome on a grueling day trip just to see Pompeii.
3: But I think Pompeii is the only place where you can really understand the Romans, how systematic they were, what a pragmatic people they were, and what it was like for daily life for a Roman citizen.
0: You really can resurrect that sort of uh, intimate kind of here I am in the market. Oh, absolutely. It's not just
3: a pile of rubble. Absolutely. It's not just a pile of rubble. And you really get a chance to see how they constructed their buildings, how they laid out their street patterns, and how much of that is really very modern you can make a lot of connections between the ancients and what we do today and how much of our civilization is based on Roman civilization.
0: You can even see towers that used to hold water tanks. Oh, yeah, be absolutely. fed by aqueducts and then be piped with the help of gravity throughout the whole town.
3: Right. They had a very extensive, elaborate system for distribution of water to everyone.
0: You really gain an appreciation for Roman engineering when you get to walk through Pompeii.
3: Yeah, you really do.
0: What happened exactly on August 24th, 79 A.D.?
3: Well, the fact that it happened on August 24th, I always find ironic. It was the day after the annual festival dedicated to the god Vulcan, who is the god of the forge. There were certainly some signs ahead of time that warned that Vesuvius was going to erupt, but only very few people would have understood what those signs were. So basically, all of a sudden, a plume of smoke came up, and it eventually, over hours and hours, shot up something like 20 kilometers into the sky, and it took several hours for that to happen, and then all of a sudden this huge ash cloud filled with pumice and stone came down and just... Just buried the city. Just buried the city.
0: I mean, really buried the city. People were stopped literally in their tracks.
3: Yeah, exactly. Today and were, we can even see these casts. You can see the plaster casts. The archaeologists are amazing. When they were digging down, excavating in there, what they found is that the bodies that were buried... The skeletons remained, but they had left an outline of where the body was. And so they injected liquid plaster into there. So you have the outline of the body, but the actual bones are still inside, in the position they were when they died. So you can see some of the expressions on their faces. It's
0: very dramatic. It is extremely dramatic. Nina, take me on just a walk down the street in Pompeii, and as a tour guide, tell me what I would see, and then how, by looking at that and knowing what it meant, I could sort of uh, get a sense of what life was like 2,000 years ago.
3: The first big space that you're going to encounter is the forum, and you'll notice that it says pedestrian only. Um, You'll notice that most of the important administrative public buildings and temples are around the Forum. So you'll see it really was the heart of the city, the gathering place, the social, the political, the economic center of the city. And when you understand that Pompeii was a commercial town, you'll know that travelers were coming in there from all corners of uh, the Roman Empire, and that's a place that they would meet to exchange news. So it really was the hub of the city. It was the heartbeat of the city.
0: And it really is pedestrian only. I remember there's big, tall stones that, mark the end of a traffic road right at the gateway to the Forum, to the main square. Now when we look at the Forum, we would have great temples, we would have marketplaces. What else would we have?
3: You would have administration buildings, you would have the Basilica, which is the most important building for administering justice, where a judge would sit. Uh, You would have something like a city hall, Mm -hmm. and you would have all kinds of shops. So think about what we would call a shopping mall.
0: It's dramatic to me because you stand in the Forum and you think of the grandeur of this when you when you can kind of put this rubble all back together, and then you look on the horizon and you see half a mountain. Exactly. And that's that's Vesuvius. And to think that it once was pyramid-shaped. Right. In fact, I believe that the great museum in Naples has most of the important art from Pompeii.
3: Right. Everything that was not stolen during the unauthorized excavations was taken to the Naples Archaeological Museum, the most important in all of Italy.
0: And I, I remember seeing a fresco that actually shows Pompeii before it blew.
3: Right, in covered in vegetation the all the way to the top. A l-
0: it looked like a cornucopia of abundance in life, and life really was good before 79 A.D.
3: Absolutely, and because that's always been a heavily volcanic area, the soil extremely rich and fertile, so it was always a great place for growing vines and uh, olive trees. So they had a very important wine production that was one of the biggest industries outside of Pompeii.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Pompeii with uh, tour guide Nina Bernardo, and uh, when we walk down the streets of Pompeii, we're reminded what clever engineers the Romans were. Sidewalks were elevated to cover plumbing.
3: Sidewalks are elevated to cover plumbing, also to keep uh, you from getting wet. If you think about water that would have been rushing through the streets at all times, Animals that were pulling the carriages would have left their excrement in the street, so you don't want to walk on that.
0: In fact, there's even stepping stones, aren't there?
3: Exactly, crosswalks. So you can step over there to get to the other side. Stepping
0: stones that let the chariot wheels go by and all the muck on the cobbles, but people with their nice sandals could stay above all the muck.
3: Exactly. And you can also, underneath some of that, you can see where they laid their piping, so you can understand that they had a piping system that brought water to each and every individual home. So they would have had T-junctions that brought water from the water towers to the drinking fountains, but also to each of the individual homes. Very democratic in that way. How so? Well, just that everybody had access, for example, to running water. You didn't have to live in the Pasha section of town.
0: Okay. And you can even see the lead pipes remaining.
3: You can, right. The ones that weren't stolen are weren't, still there.
0: You can see grooves carved into the stone from the chariots.
3: Absolutely, right. And you can see where they were replacing some of those stones as they were continually doing maintenance on the city. And we have to remember as well that Pompeii existed well before. By 79 AD, Pompeii was already 600 years old.
0: Really? Mm-hmm. So it was a, a well-established town. Right. Take us into a private home in Pompeii. What would we see? How can we get a, an insight into, into the lifestyle of somebody who had a nice home in Pompeii?
3: Um... A middle-class home or an extremely wealthy home, basically the same layout, but you walk in and there's kind of a welcome area, an atrium area that would have been open to the sky, so rainwater would have come in and drained into a cistern. Um, There would have been a waiting area where you would have waited to see the man of the house if you had any business to attend to. And off to the sides would have been private bedrooms, maybe in the back there would have been a beautiful garden where they would have had outdoor meals in the summertime um, if they would have had guests there, that's where they would have had their meals and they would have had slaves entertaining them with music and poetry. And
0: it's amazing. And beautiful frescoes remain on some of the walls. On
3: some of the walls, yes. The Villa of the Mysteries especially. But almost everywhere you go, you can see the remnants of some painting.
0: Now it's dark. We've just had a party. I, I want to go for a stroll in the streets. Uh, there's not a lot of light. But there's little, um, the sidewalks The sidewalks
3: all have um, marble chips in them, so they're almost like cat's eyes, so they reflect the moonlight so that you can get around without being in total darkness. I mean, it's really amazing the detail that they attended to.
0: These are the little intimate insights you can gain by thoughtfully approaching a great site like Pompeii. But imagine walking just by, by moonlight, and you have these reflective cat eyes in the sidewalk in a day before electricity, obviously, that helped you know where you're going. It's genius. What's another little intimate glimpse of life that you enjoy as a guide in Pompeii? I love seeing
3: the snack bars because it's the fast food of of ancient times. So you walk in and you see where the containers were held, where they would have kept food hot or cold. Um, Usually the snack bars are outside of the theaters or the brothels or the spas, uh, the baths. And that's where people would have gone to get a meal or a drink. And I forget the number, maybe 40-odd, 50-odd snack bars in Pompeii. Snack
0: bars all over town? All over town. I believe there were 30 brothels.
3: Right. So, also an important industry. So, but if you think about Pompeii as a, a traveling town, a commercial town, all those travelers coming in there... Ah, uh,
0: it was a sailor's town.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because, you know, a lot of people forget that the sea silts up and recedes over 2,000 years.
3: Right, so Pompeii was much closer to the sea.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nina Bernardo. We're talking about Pompeii. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Daphne's on the phone in Kensington, Maryland. Daphne, thanks for your call.
5: Uh, you're welcome. My husband and I are going to Italy for the first time, and we'll be in Rome for a week, and I'm wondering, is it worth taking all day and going to Pompeii, or will we get a similar experience at, I think it's called Ostia Antica in your Rome?
0: Well, this is a very, very good point, Daphne, because, as I mentioned, Pompeii is three and a half hours south of Rome, really, by train, and that's a right. grueling day, but it can be done. But Ostia right. Antica, the ancient seaport of Rome, which I think had 60,000 people in its heyday, is just a half-an-hour subway train ride to the south of Rome, and that could give you an adequate experience and save you six hours en route. Nina, how would you compare Ostia with Pompeii?
3: I think they're both excellent experiences, but I think Pompeii is really worth the train back and forth because I think it gives you a much more complete picture. Um, Ostia is the most important port. It was a a trading, a commercial town, but Pompeii really gives you a look into daily life for the Mm. average Roman citizen.
0: I would stress that the great art of Pompeii is now in the National Museum in Naples. So, you know, Daphne, what you might want to do is just uh, give yourself a couple of nights in uh, Sorrento, a beautiful town just a half an hour away from Pompeii. That's the resort town. Naples is kind of like the urban jungle. So you could take the train down to Sorrento and spend the better part of the day in Naples visiting the National Museum and enjoying what I just think is one of the most exciting cities in all of Europe, Naples. Settle into the resort in Sorrento and then take most of the next day to see Pompeii, enjoy Sorrento that evening, and then take the train back to Rome. Nina, I think that's a
3: great use of time, absolutely. And it's a nice break away from Rome as well, just to get onto the coast for a while. Okay.
0: Any other thoughts, uh, Daphne?
5: I guess my only other question, honestly, is when I looked online at some of the images of um, Pompeii, I saw, I think, what it's still there, like the bodies of some of the people who died. And then I thought, oh, God, is this really, like, kind of going to be very depressing?
3: Well, there are only a couple of places there where you can see the plaster casts. So, one, in one of the marketplaces, they have two in display cases, and then there's another area that you really have to seek out to see more of the plaster casts. But I think that's just a really interesting look. I think it actually brings the people of Pompeii closer, the Pompeians closer to us to see that.
5: Okay, so it's only in two places, and it's not like all, you don't see them everywhere.
3: It's not going to be a morbid experience. There's nothing, okay.
0: there's nothing morbid about Pompeii, really. No. No. Okay. But remember, Daphne, the the museum in Naples is so rich and you've got so much incredible frescoes and pottery and Uh insights into the intimate Uh daily life of the people of Pompeii that it's just a shame to see Pompeii without going to the museum in Naples.
3: I think you've only had half of experience if you've done only Pompeii.
5: Okay. All right. I I appreciate that. That's great.
0: Thank you, Daphne, for the call and and good luck on your trip.
5: Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Another thing, Nina, is uh, Herculaneum is another town that was destroyed in the same eruption. It's a small version. Uh, well, it's a smaller town, but it's quite different. How would you compare Herculaneum and Pompeii? very, very in different Pompeii?
3: than Pompeii. One, it was covered in 30 or 40 feet of lava and mud, so it's preserved. much. In, it's in a much better state than Pompeii is in. So you can see, for example, some of the wood in situ, which you can't see in Pompeii, some of the second stories you can see. Mm-hmm. It's a much smaller site because most of it is under the modern city. But we've said Pompeii was a commercial town. Herculaneum was really a much more upscale kind of place. So that whole coast south of Rome around Napoli was the playground of the rich and famous.
0: All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Natalie's on the line in Ashburn, Virginia. Natalie, thanks for your call.
5: Hi, thank you. Uh, I am taking a cruise, actually, and touring different places in Italy with a group of 10 people. And they range in age from 13 to 70. And so I'm looking for something that we can do in, you know, a nine-hour-ish time period that would be relevant for everyone included.
0: You know, Natalie, I think I can actually answer this quite well because I was just in Naples on a cruise. Okay. And I was um, skeptical about how can uh, you enjoy an efficient nine hours on, on shore from your boat in Naples. The boat docks literally right downtown in Naples. It's the handiest jumping-off point for any of the cruise ports that I experienced. And right there at the port, there's a Good Tourist Information Office, and there's a whole line of government-regulated taxis. And these guys have regulated fees. You don't pay until you're done. And there's minibus taxis where you could put a lot of people in. With oh, a group great. of 10, you, you could actually book two taxis, and you'd find that they could do a very efficient day for you giving you a drive down to Pompeii. You could actually go up to Vesuvius if you wanted to. They could take you through the site at Pompeii, and they would get you back to the ship before departure time, and they have an incentive in that because they don't get paid until they bring you back in time for you to catch your ship.
5: And is it better then to negotiate a rate up front, or just is it a per-hour rate? How does that work?
0: Uh, They would have the rates actually printed right there, and you would want to establish the rate and make it really clear this is the complete rate. The beautiful thing about renting a taxi from the port is wherever you are in Europe... It's about the same for one person or for four people. And if you had a minibus, it would be marginally more expensive. But it really becomes quite efficient and quite economic when you have a group of people all doing something together. Your biggest frustration, Natalie, is going to be there's like three days' worth of things to see from that cruise port, and you've only got that one day.
5: Exactly. That's why, you know, especially with the big difference in ages, I wanted to make sure I saw the things that were the most popular but that would still be appealing to all the ages.
0: Well, if you've got the luxury of a of a driver and a guide and a car, I think you just want to hit the ground running. As soon as that gangplank's down, be on it.
5: Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you for your help.
0: You bet. Good luck, Natalie, with your little tour of 10.
5: Thank you so much.
0: Allison's on the line in Spokane, Washington. Allison, thanks for your call.
5: Well,
7: oh, hi, Rick and Nina. Thank you. Um, hey, my family and I are flying into Rome... We arrive on a Wednesday morning in Rome uh, with our 14-year-old son. Then we have a full day Thursday in Rome before we leave in the morning on Friday to go to Venice to meet up with a tour. So we have this full day in Rome. We've always wanted to go see Pompeii, but I wonder, is it really a doable one-day trip with a bus tour? We can't afford the expensive private guide. I'm wondering, uh, for price and amount of hours, are we going to be completely exhausted and kind of spoil the rest of our Big trip. We'd love to see Pompeii. We'd also just love to have a leisurely afternoon on the Amalfi Coast and then hop on a bus and get back in bed in time not to be exhausted the next day.
3: What do you think? Your problem is you only have one day. (laughs) (laughs) You're just trying to do two days worth
0: of stuff in one day. Yeah,
3: you really have to choose what it is you want. One of those options is possible, but you have to choose.
7: You mean either Pompeii or the coast?
3: Exactly.
0: Yeah. It is Italy. Things don't work like clockwork. You're in Rome, and and Pompeii is south of Naples, so there's an express train. What is it, two hours from Rome to Naples now?
3: Yeah, the really fast one is an hour and five minutes, but it's also the most expensive. It's going to cost about 45 euros one way.
0: Okay, so if you can afford the fast train, that'll save you a couple hours of time en route over the course of the day. You might consider having a, driver. Well, it's expensive to have a driver, you know, so you need to use public transit, I think.
7: It was close to $1,000, I think, for the three of us to have a private driver for a full day to do Pompeii and Amalfi, I think.
0: But that would be from from Rome. Rome. But you would go faster by train than by private driver. If you want to have the luxury of a private driver, but you don't want to spend $1,000, you've got to take the train from Rome to Naples, and then it's five bucks to take the circumvesuviana right to the doorstep of Pompeii.
3: It's very easy to do. So
0: Nina could get from your hotel in Rome to Pompeii in two hours if she had to. Probably. But that's really knowing how to do it. Mm -hmm. This is the classic American problem. You're trying to do too much. You know, in half an hour, you could be at Ostia. Ostia is really great. You've got a 14-year-old with you. Ostia is your neighborhood Pompeii that's just easy access from Rome. And every time I go to Ostia, I I just feel like this is really... uh, a special discovery and mm. you, you get the magic. It's not as good as Pompeii, but you're going to save six hours of travel time by, mm-hmm. by going to Ostia instead of Pompeii. And I think to be practical, you sound like you don't want to exhaust yourself and you're on vacation, you know. right? Take it easy. Make, make Ostia your Pompeii, given the fact that you only have one day and you have a child with you from Rome.
7: I think that's a great idea. And come back, make it an excuse to come back and do the yeah. Sorrento, Pompeii, Coastal...
0: Exactly, because, you know, for 25 years I was leading tours in this area, and the one place where we could spend more nights than any other, even Paris and Rome and so on, was Sorrento. There was so much to do from Sorrento. You've got the Amalfi Coast, you've got Capri, you've got Vesuvius, you've got Pompeii, you've got wonderful city of Naples, and you've got just the elegance of being on vacation in Sorrento.
7: Fantastic.
0: Thanks, Allison, and uh, good for you for taking your 14-year-old over there and having all of that inspiration. My first trip to Europe was when I was 14, and I ended up getting a history degree by accident and then ended up finding the career of my dreams. Okay, Awesome,
7: awesome. Same with me. I went at 14, I studied art history as a minor, and it opened the whole world for me. Isn't that great? I'm excited. Thanks a lot. Okay, bye now. Okay, bye.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been prowling the ruins of Pompeii and bringing them to life with the help of Nina Bernardo. Nina, when you take a group through Pompeii, what is one spot where you really can kind of imagine you're actually there?
3: I love going to the public baths. One, I love seeing the Roman engineerings, how they managed to make the hollow walls with the terracotta piping in there so that they could pipe in steam to make saunas. I love the beautiful decorations that they have in there, not only the mosaics, but the beautiful stucco decorations that are still left there. But most of all, I love realizing and understanding that those public baths were open to everybody. And now, today, we consider going to a spa kind of um, a luxury, whereas there they went all the time, and it was the full experience, the massaging, the oils, the warm room, the hot room, the cold plunge pool. And the beautiful decor? The beautiful decor.
0: My goodness. As a tour guide... Somebody is lucky to have you to show them around to bring that culture back to life. Nina Bernardo, thanks so much for sharing your expertise of Pompeii with us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Rick has produced an audio walking tour of Pompeii that you can download to your smartphone. Look in the Audio Europe link at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Italy, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel
2: newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable
0: reality. To gear up for your next adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.